Great. Okay. Well, so as Steve mentioned, we are going through a series on Luke at the moment and have been this academic year. I've been really enjoying it so far. I hope you have been as well. And we're getting to a point in Luke where it's this kind of climactic build-up to the entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus is on an intentional journey and it keeps cropping up, you know, where he's on his way to as he was entering Jericho, as he was in Jericho, on his way to Jerusalem, as he was leaving Jericho, as he entered Jerusalem, as he got to the Mount of Olives, there's this direction and focus in this part of Luke, just of this purposeful journey towards what Jesus knows he's there to do. And uh, if you want further proof that God is intentional, not that you should need it, but if you do, um, just some of the themes that were coming out this morning in the prophetic uh, tie in so nicely with this passage. And, you know, God is here ahead of us. He knows us and loves us as a community. And the words that he's speaking to us today prophetically tie up with the words that he speaks to us through his word. And they give us a consistent message that Jesus wants us to hear. So I just encourage you to keep in mind the things that have been shared already. I'll try and pull them out where I remember to make the links back. But keep in mind what God has been speaking because I think it really ties together today. So as Jesus goes on this intentional journey to Jerusalem, am I doing something wrong on this mic? Take it away. Thanks. Is that, is that better? Thanks. Um, as he goes on this intentional journey, he knows very clearly who he is and what he's doing. Um, but a lot of other people don't. There's a lot of confusion. Even back as far as Luke 9, Jesus asks his disciples you know, about the crowds. He says, well, what, who do they think I am? And some say that he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's one of the prophets. They, they don't really know. Or there's lots of different conflicting theories. So there's some confusion as to who Jesus is. And there's also opposition. So the Pharisees know very well who they think he is. And they don't like him. And they just don't quite dare to say it a lot of the time because they're afraid of his popular following. So you've got the people who are confused You've got the people who are opposed to him. And then you've got some partial revelation as well. So the disciples, you know, he says to them, who do you say I am? And Peter has this wonderful revelation where he says, you are the Messiah. And, you know, Jesus says, yes, that's right. You've got it. You've got it. That's who I am. And that's been shown to you by God. But even then, they haven't fully got it. Because not that much later, Philip says, you know, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus says, I, have you been with me so little time? Do you not know me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They haven't fully got it. They've got something of it, but they haven't fully got it. And partly because of that, Jesus is at great pains to explain to them not only who he is, but also who he is not. So this passage that we're looking at today starts off with Jesus being very clear about the way that he is going to arrive in Jerusalem. Because there would have been a lot of expectations. You'll have you heard this before, I'm sure, that he was going to come in, you know, to take back Jerusalem from the Romans, that he was going to be this leader who would bring the kingdom of God here and now. And Jesus, well, let's read the passage. Jesus took the 12 aside. This is Luke 18 um, from verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that has been written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will insult him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. 
and they will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Now, I think we can be a little unfair on the disciples at times. It's very easy to look back with hindsight and understand what was going on. But at the same time, sometimes I read this and I think, really? If you're reading the NIV version, your little headline above this passage will say, Jesus predicts his death for the third time. And he's pretty clear, isn't he? Um, But then on the other hand, you know, the disciples could have been thinking, well, he was talking about bread and yeast and he didn't really mean bread and yeast, did he? He was talking about something else. Maybe he's not here. You know, I don't want to be the first one to ask. You know, you don't want to be the person to put your hand up and say, I don't understand, do you? And uh, so there may well be some of that going on. There's also some commentators who just think that it was a kind of computer says no moment in their brain that they just couldn't put together the Messiah and suffering and death. I had the privilege of um, studying Christology and Soteriology, salvation, uh, with Steve and with Dave Perry at, at King's School of Theology just a few weeks back. And one of the most powerful things that Steve shared, actually, was the shame of the cross and how we can look back at it now with, sort of with heroic glasses on and we see this great act of heroism in which Jesus dies for us and that's great, but at the time they didn't see it that way. At the time, he was exiled outside the city. He wasn't even being stoned by his own people. He was being crucified by the Gentiles. These, these people were dogs, <laughs> to Israel. They weren't allowed to eat with them, touch them, you know, barely interact with them. And Jesus was being killed by them. In fact, he was being handed over to them. He was being betrayed by his own people. That's how much they rejected him and despised him. And then he was hung on a cross and left there. And there was that curse as well, wasn't there? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So for the disciples to not understand how the chosen one of God could be crucified by the Gentiles outside the city, well, you can understand that as well. So there's this partial revelation of who Jesus is and what he's doing, hence the born identity picture just a second ago. But Jesus is clear not only about who he is and what he's doing, but also about who he is not. And this passage leads us fantastically back into that theme that Simon Jackman picked up on last week, that the kingdom is now but not yet. Jesus is the rightful king, we'll see more of that in a second, but he's not coming right now to claim his kingdom. He's coming to suffer and to die and to be raised to glory. Now, if the apostles don't understand it, we do now get from Luke two stories of people who do understand something of it. And these are fantastic stories. Luke loves to turn things on their heads. And we've seen that throughout the gospel. He loves to turn things on his heads. And here we have two beautiful examples of that. The first one being Bartimaeus. The second one being Zacchaeus. And Bartimaeus is the blind man who sees. And I don't just mean that he receives his sight, but he's the blind man who sees spiritually truths that others are missing. So let's read this story of Bartimaeus. As Jesus approached Jericho, remembering it's all about this intentional journey, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, 
Oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. So he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered that he be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. I don't know if you remember that when the triumphal entry happens, which is the next passage we come to, the people are all praising God for the many miracles they had seen. Now, one of them has just happened here. And Bartimaeus starts praising God. And as a result, all the people praise God. Bartimaeus's praise is so infectious that it leads into this amazing Hosanna moment as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Let's keep that in mind. Because Bartimaeus, the man who is blind, sees things that others don't. What does he get right? Well, for a start, he calls Jesus son of David. It's an interesting title. You don't hear it that often in the Gospels. Jesus generally prefers son of man. And we often think of son of God. But there was this expectation, prophetic expectation in Israel, that there would be a shepherd who would come and shepherd rightly in the model of David. And you get this fantastic prophecy in Ezekiel about the good shepherd who would uh, go after the, the thin and the marginalized sheep at the expense of the ones who had been you know, pushing the others out the way and getting food for themselves. We'll come back to that picture in a second, but there was this expectation that there would be this Davidic king. So Bartimaeus is appealing to that sense. We, you know, we don't know how much he understood, but he understood enough to call him son of David. That also means that he acknowledges Jesus' kingship. And there are people who are very equivocal about that, but Bartimaeus is not. He doesn't just say, son of David. He shouts, son of David, listen to me, please, my king. And he recognizes that he has the authority to do something. Now, he probably would have heard that Jesus was a miracle worker. You know, he says, what's going on? Jesus is coming by. It prompts this response. He must have heard. He may even have heard that Jesus had healed people who were born blind. We don't know. But he recognizes that Jesus has the authority to heal. And then he perseveres. And you'll have seen I titled this book, Make Your Mind Up. Bartimaeus is the first who really makes his mind up. The apostles, mm, they're still deciding. They're still not sure about a lot of things. Bartimaeus makes his mind up. You can tell it because even when people are telling him to shut up, he keeps going on all the louder. We don't know why he's told to shut up. Maybe the people who are with Jesus, you know, like when the children were brought to him, they said, you know, don't bother him. Don't bother. Maybe it's something of that. Maybe, oh, don't bother him. You know, you're a beggar. He's Jesus. Don't bother him. Maybe it was that kind of possessiveness that we can get when we're around somebody who's kind of great and we, we feel like we're attached to them. You know, oh, no, they're, they're, they're ours. You know, you stay away. We're, we're doing this taking him to Jericho thing. We don't know why, but in the face of being told to shut up, he goes, son of David, have mercy on me. 
he makes his mind up. He wants Jesus. He wants what Jesus has. Jesus is king and he is not going to shut up. And he's very direct and honest as well, isn't he? He doesn't beat around the bush. What do you want? I want to see. It's not, if you can. I want to see. And then he responds in praise. And again, it's only recently we've had the story of the ten lepers. All ten were cleansed. One came back praising God. In this case, Bartimaeus receives his sight. And his response of praise is so great as he follows along the road after Jesus His response of praise is so great that it leads the other people to praise as well. Bartimaeus may be blind or may have been blind, but he sees clearly and he makes his mind up. So straight off the back of Bartimaeus, we have another man, another topsy-turvy story. We have Zacchaeus. Now, you might remember, does anyone remember what we've heard about rich people in the last couple of chapters? Someone shout out a story or a parable? Awkward moments. Okay. Uh, We've recently just been looking at the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he's done everything right, apart from one thing. Now, Zacchaeus is a totally different story. Let's read about Zacchaeus. And I want you to hold those two together in your mind. Rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Because there's a deliberate contrast here and it's really meaningful. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Direction again. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now that's not just extra words for the sake of it. We've already seen that tax collectors and sinners was a whole bracket that people were lumped into. You were a tax collector, you were a sinner, same difference. I'm sorry, does anyone here work for HMRC? (laughs) One of these days I'm going to be preaching, there will be somebody. I'm not in any way denigrating our current taxation system. But back in those days, (laughs) tax had to be taxing. Um, There was a man, he wasn't just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. So if you didn't like tax collectors, he was the worst. And not just that, but he was wealthy. And you may not have needed to make that point extra strong, but he does. Why does he do it? Well, what's the implication? Where's that money coming from? Whose money is he lining his pockets with? Okay, this is not a man that we're supposed to initially like. And he's wealthy. What did Jesus say about rich people entering the kingdom of God? Come on, this is an easier one. Somebody shout it out. It's hard, harder than a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Absolutely. So we're supposed to make this link. We've got this problem. Here's Zacchaeus. He's rich. He's an outcast. He's a sinner. And not only that, we're also told he's short as well. This is just a way of, you know, Bex, there's a pained expression on your face. It's not my fault. It's not my words. (laughs) He's vertically challenged, exactly. Now, I I think it's just supposed to highlight, you know, this is not a man of great stature socially. This is not a man of great stature physically. And it also leads into why he does what he does, which is he's curious about Jesus. And he climbs this fig tree so that he can look down and see when he can't see over the crowds. This is not a problem I have, you'll know. I'm the other one. I'm the guy in the supermarket where I keep getting asked to reach things off the top shelves. But uh, he's the guy who has to climb the tree. 
So he runs ahead, he climbs the sycamore fig tree since Jesus was coming that way. Now, I think we can probably fairly say that climbing a tree to look at Jesus, he's not trying to make a personal encounter. This is not him going and falling at Jesus' feet. But this is curiosity with a degree of determination. I don't imagine climbing a tree is a particularly dignified thing to do. That's, that's me adding to the text. I don't know if that's part of what they would have understood. But certainly, he was determined enough to go and climb a tree. He didn't think, oh, I can't see. I'll go home. But Jesus steps into that quite powerfully, doesn't he? When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Not would be nice. I must stay at whose house? Your house. There's an impartation there of dignity and value And it hits the spot with Zacchaeus, doesn't it? Because he comes down and welcomes him. Not just welcomes him, but welcomes him gladly. Something's changing in Zacchaeus' heart already, isn't it? But of course, the people don't like it. And we've already said they can't necessarily make up their minds about Jesus. You know, some people say he's a good man. Some people say he's demon-possessed. The Pharisees are pretty sure that he can't be who he says he is and still hang out with the people he hangs out with. And at this, a lot of people, well, all the people here, saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. We know from when Jesus goes to the Pharisee Simon's house that there's a degree of people saying, maybe he doesn't know who she is. If he knew, he wouldn't do it. It could be that. Or it could be them saying, well, you know, outrage. This is Jesus. He's a rabbi. What's he doing spending time with them? But Zacchaeus, we have his answer here. He looks to God. He stands up and says to the Lord, Look, Lord. He calls him Lord, by the way. Notice that. That's not just an ordinary word. Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, we could run on into the next bit, but just stop there for a second. What does half your possessions look like? What does half my possessions look like? That's, it's not a trivial statement. There's no indication that it's said flippantly either. What a decision to make. He has been cut to the heart, hasn't he? And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, I'm not a Jewish law expert, but I understand that generally if you'd stolen, you paid back plus 20% if you were caught. Very, very occasionally, in the most severe cases, you'd talk about a four- or five-fold penalty. This is Zacchaeus making amends in the most radical way possible. So let's look at the rich young ruler. Let's look at Zacchaeus. The rich young ruler has done everything right. He's kept all those commandments since he was a boy. And yet he lacked one thing, which was to let go of that thing that he couldn't let go of. Zacchaeus, by Jewish accounts at least, has done everything wrong. He's sided with the Gentiles. He's got involved in a profession which involves, by very definition, siding with the Gentiles. He's mixed himself up in that culture. He's betrayed his people. There's no indication that he's attempting to live a righteous life, although there's no indication otherwise, other than his choice of profession. And, uh, and we have these two, and yet the one who really changes is Zacchaeus. He's the camel 
that got through the eye of the needle. You remember that the disciples' response to the camel and the eye of the needle was, well, who can be saved then? Help, we're all in a lot of trouble. And what does God say? He says, for man this is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Exactly. This picture, by the way, is of somebody who actually makes sculptures that fit inside the eye of a needle. Little detail. Um, He's apparently made a motorbike. The smallest motorbike ever measures three microns across. Um, But there you have little camels in the eye of a needle. Got a sense of humor. So we have the sinner who repents. We have the blind man who sees. Zacchaeus has made his mind up, hasn't he? He's not said, oh yeah, it might be nice to follow Jesus. Maybe I should clean my act up a bit. This is decisive action. There's no going back on giving up half your wealth. He counts the cost in a very literal way. We often think of counting the cost in sort of moral terms, commitment terms, and those are all right. But he also counts the cost in a very real financial sense. Of the two people who came to Jesus with money problems, only one went away sad, and it wasn't the one who gave away his money. Isn't that interesting? You remember I talked about the Ezekiel prophecy, this good shepherd, and uh, one of the verses that is spoken about this good shepherd is that he will go and seek and save the lost. And that's what we get with Jesus. His response is, I think I missed this out, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Fantastic promise. Just a little echo back to that Ezekiel prophecy again. Now, I'm trying to think if it was Ruth when she was sharing just now, or if it was something Steve said, that we're not constrained by our past, that God leads us into the future. A common thread with both of these stories is that the blind man isn't constrained by his prior state of blindness. Zacchaeus isn't constrained by his prior state of being a sinner and an outcast. They're constrained by the choice that they make when they make their mind up about Jesus. The rich young ruler says, yeah, I, I wanted to follow Jesus. You remember, he goes away sad. He, he's aware that you know, there's, there's a real tussle for this. It's not, oh, well, if it's money, then I'm going. There's a real tussle, but he goes away sad. Zacchaeus makes his mind up the other way. Bartimaeus makes his mind up who Jesus is. And their future is governed by that choice and not by their prior state of being. Well, two stories where Luke lands that for us. And then Jesus points the finger at us with a parable. And this is the parable of the minas. So we're now at the beginning of Luke 19, if you're following it in the Bibles. And the parable of the minas is actually two parables stuck together, we think. There's, uh, there's two different aspects to it that we'll um, draw on as we go along. Because this parable is about a king who goes away and he leaves behind subjects and he leaves behind servants. And there's two messages that come out of that. But let's read the passage. So while they were listening to this, 
he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Remember that intentional journey? And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come at once. He said no. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Just in case this sounds like a far-fetched situation, pretty much exactly this happened, by the way, with Herod Archelaus, I think is how you say it. Because they were Roman rulers in that area, they had to go to Rome to receive their authority to rule. And people did actually send a delegation after Herod Archelaus saying, we don't want him. It made it very difficult for them when he came back, having been made king. So this is a situation that people can immediately relate to. And he was made king. You remember, he was of noble birth, this king in the parable. He had the right to be king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has gained 10 more. A mina is about roughly a year's wages, by the way. It's a significant amount of money. Your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. He's come back with a lot more than when he left, hasn't he? He left able to give out 10 minas to 10 servants. He comes back and he can give charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your minas earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in. You reap what you don't sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in, reaping what I didn't sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? So when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him. Give it to the one with ten. Sir, they said, he's already got ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Typically, Jesus not mincing his words there. But I said there are two messages here. There's the servants and there's the subjects. Let's start with the subjects. That's a simpler one. Because his subjects hate the king. He has the right to be king. He's of noble birth and they hate him. They say, irrespective of your right, we don't want you. And their choice to reject the king's rightful kingship ends up costing them everything. We have the the servants and their relative gains and rewards, but that's put in clear distinction from the life and death of choosing the rightful king. Jesus comes here with a really strong message, choose life. I was going to put up the train spotting poster. Fortunately, it's a little um, not suitable for church. But there's a film, isn't there, that kind of puts, you know, here's, here's two ways of living, and one of them is life, isn't it? And... In a different way, this is Jesus's choose life. Make your mind up. Is he the king? 
if he's the king, there's a serious choice to be made. And then the servants have to make their choice as well, don't they? Because they vary in the service that they render him. You've got the one who acts in fear and actually misjudges the king because he does misunderstand the king. The king does not reap what he doesn't sow. He sowed one mina and he gives. Well, he receives 10, but gives 10 cities. This is not a stingy king. This is a generous king. The servant has totally misjudged him and he acts out of fear and he hides it away. He doesn't even do what as a servant he should have rightly done, which is at least take it to the bank and put it there. He acts out of fear. He makes his mind up that he's just going to act in self-interest and protect himself. And then you have the servants who take some risks. You know, they'd get fivefold, tenfold returns, but business was risky back then. You could make a lot of money, but you could lose it all as well. And they take some risks and they obviously commit themselves to being careful in their stewardship and in doing something intentional with that money. And they see immense returns, variable but immense returns, and they're able to present the king with gifts. They make their minds up that their king is worth serving and worth serving well. We were singing, I will offer up my life earlier. That's the song that was sung at my baptism when I got baptized, age 15. And it's something I come back to again and again. You deserve my every breath. You know, we can sing that, can't we? And, and think, yeah, you deserve my every breath. No, you deserve my every breath. The times when I'm working. Jesus deserves my every breath at work. The times when I'm at home trying to relax, Jesus deserves my every breath. When I'm with my kids, Jesus deserves my every breath. If I feel like sleeping in the night and there's praying to be done, Jesus deserves my every breath. If I'm resting at night because God created rest, he still deserves my every breath. For he paid the great price. These servants have decided that their master is worth their every moment and they've invested, they've worked and they've given him a great gift in return. I sometimes encourage a couple of the students that I meet up with regularly to think about what they might be able to cast as a crown in front of Jesus on that day when they meet him in heaven. What are the crowns that we can cast? What are the five or ten minas that we're going to present back to Jesus. What might it involve to see that being ten rather than one? I want to suggest there's three ways that we could respond to this message, depending on what it is that God's putting his finger on. And uh, I'll lay those out, and then I'm going to hand back to Steve. Um, to kind of to land this but the first is there's a clear decision on is Jesus the king make your mind up is he the king Elijah gets absolutely furious about this when he's talking to Israel about them worshipping Jesus or sorry worshipping the Lord rather and worshipping Baal and he says how long will you waver between two opinions make your mind up either he is or he is We've got a similar thing here. How long 
can you waver between two opinions? Make your mind up. Either Jesus is the king and he's worth everything, or he's a fiction, or a madman, or a liar. There's a call to make your mind up. And I want to suggest here that if you don't know Jesus as your king, make your mind up. He comes back with cities to give away. I don't think it's selfish to think like this. Jesus is coming back with great reward. And it's right to offer things to him. And it's fantastic that he offers even greater riches to us. I want to encourage you, it's a good time today to choose to make Jesus your king. And if you'd like to do that, then there would be a lot of people who would love to pray with you about that. So maybe come and find one of us at the end and we'd love to talk through what that means to make Jesus your king and to pray with you. Then there's Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. If you feel like God has put his finger on something this morning and said, would you give that up for me? Then I'd like to encourage you, it's a good time to say yes. Yeah, it might not be easy, but yes, I will. And if that's what God's doing with you, it's a great idea to talk to somebody you know and trust and to share that so it doesn't become a good intention that disappears. Share it with somebody. Pray it over with somebody. The last challenge then is what are we doing with the mina? Make your mind up. Is, is he worth our every breath? I want to be clear what I'm not saying here um, because, again, it's a discussion I've had with some of the students recently that when I say, is Jesus worth our every breath? Can we work for Jesus all the time? I'm not saying that everybody should be coming into church ministry, just to be clear. There's not enough room on the stage for a start. But what I am saying is, can every moment of our life be dedicated to finding out what Jesus wants and doing it? And doing it faithfully and doing it wholeheartedly and doing it with passion and having something to cast in front of Jesus as a crown on that day that we meet him. Let's commit wholeheartedly to presenting God with a good return.